Do take your Bible and uh, keep it open there at Isaiah chapter 56, in which uh, the Lord God uh, unfolds his plan for his church and for his people in this present age. As Isaiah has been unpacking throughout this book, his exposition really of the message that God has given to him. One of the things that he has done regularly is expose the church of his own day, and by extension the church of our day, under the holy word of God. He, he examines it, he exposes the dark places of uh, the church on earth. In fact, if you look at the book, you'll find that one of the great words that is used over and over again in Isaiah is the word righteous or righteousness. Chapter 1, for example, takes time to expose Israel and Judah as a rebellious and unrighteous people. So much so that they look as if they are completely devoid of any spiritual life whatsoever. They're full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Everything that you find obnoxious and ugly and revolting, that's the way they look in the, in the sight of God. Later on, he will go through the nations, the big nations round about the people we're familiar with, and he will demonstrate that not only is the holy nation unholy, but all these other nations are unholy as well. His conclusion will be, there is none righteous, no, not one. There, are, there is nobody righteous enough, that is, nobody who obeys the law of God in, in their lives to the degree that would make them acceptable in the presence of God. That's chapter 1 of Isaiah. Then you go to chapter 2 of Isaiah, and he paints this picture of a holy people, people who are, in fact, righteous, people whose lives demonstrate the change, the transformation, the influence of the power of God upon them, and their very righteousness acts as a magnet, a magnet that attracts the nations, people outside of Judaism, outside of Israel, like a magnet to the Lord. They come to Zion, they come to the holy hill, they come to where God is, and they want to be part of the action of what God is doing in the world. And the big question is, how do you get from chapter 1 to chapter 2 of Isaiah? And there's a sense in which the rest of the book is answering that question. Uh, chapter 1 is revisited again and again and again as, as Isaiah makes the case of Yahweh versus Israel. Yahweh versus the nations. They are unrighteous. That takes you up to chapter 39. Then in chapters 40 to 55, we're introduced to the righteousness of God himself. The God who is, is a righteous God. He promises that he will send a Messiah and he will be a righteous servant. He will be characterized by righteousness in everything he does. He will be called, in fact, the righteous servant. And he will, in the, in the flow of that passage, it comes to the point where this righteous one will be treated in an unrighteous way by an unrighteous nation. He will be rejected by them. He will, he will be killed by them. And yet the reality is that this righteous one will take the place of unrighteous people, will carry their sin, 
and will feel the punishment that that unrighteousness deserves. That has been the good news that Isaiah has been proclaiming, really, from chapter 40 to chapter 55, that the warfare between God and people has been resolved by the righteous, in my place, representative, the servant of the Lord. And as a result of his work, in that section, Isaiah has proclaimed that as a result of his work, my, the righteous one, my servant, will make many people to be accounted righteous. As a result of his being wounded for my transgressions, his being bruised for my iniquities, his feeling of the punishment due to my sins. He will cause many to be accounted righteous because he will bear their iniquities. Chapter 53 and verse 11. There's the good news that God is going to proclaim, declare, judge, announce that people who are unrighteous are now credited, accounted to be righteous in his eyes. And that's the good news that's celebrated in chapter 54, uh, where people break out into singing because this is such good news that God is doing what we could not do for ourselves. He is providing the salvation we need, but he's doing all the work for it. And there God underlines that his compassion, his promise, his word is written in a covenant that cannot be broken, an everlasting treaty has been signed. The warfare is finished. God has entered into this covenant agreement through the servant that will not be altered, that is signed and sealed and secured for his people. Then chapter 55, it was the free offer of the gospel. As the good news is now heralded to everybody, come, receive it. You don't have to pay for it. If you've got nothing, you can have it. If you've got something, you can have it. It's free at the point of delivery, this good news message of being accounted righteous with God. And that's where we got to last time. And if you haven't become a Christian, that's the chapter you need to read. There's the free offer of the gospel. It's for you. It doesn't require you to do anything. It doesn't require you to, pro to provide anything or to contribute anything. It is free. It is absolutely free. Come and receive it. Look to the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That's the salvation that is secured. So by the time we get to 56, the salvation has been accomplished. It's been applauded and rejoiced in, and it's been announced and offered to the world. Then we come to chapter 56, and we find him referring to that salvation, that salvation that begins and but has not come in all its fullness yet. We haven't got to chapter 2 yet of uh, Isaiah. We haven't got to chapter 2 of Isaiah yet. The day when the mountain of the house of the Lord rises up above all the mountains, as it were, and the peoples of the earth come flocking in to the to the city of God. We're not there yet in all its fullness. The people of God are not perfect yet. You just have to be minister of a church and you soon find that out. You just have to be a member of a church and you soon find that out about your minister. We are not there yet. But that day is coming. That day when my salvation will come, my righteousness 
will be revealed. I want you to notice there is no doubt about that salvation coming. And there is no doubt about the righteousness of God being revealed. Those who have heard the good news, trusted the good news, who are living, uh, leaning on and have received the servant as their Messiah, their place-taking, sin-bearing, punishment-enduring Messiah, those people have salvation coming to them. You know, in the New Testament, this word salvation is used in three tenses. There was once a a bishop in the uh, Anglican church. He he was well known for going to Bible conferences. And he was on a a train on one occasion, and a lady noticed, a, a very enthusiastic evangelistic lady, noticed that he had on his bishop's uh, vest and uh, assumed, therefore, as a lot of evangelical people do, that if you're a bishop, you can't be a Christian. So she thought she would witness to him, and, and she, asked him, she asked him the question, are you saved? Bishop Hanley Mole played a bit with her. I have to say he did. It was not very gracious, but he did. I'm sure he did it very graciously. He said, uh, well, excuse me, madam, what salvation are you speaking of? Uh, Do you mean, have I been saved? Am I being saved? Or will I be saved? Well, that kind of confused her a little bit, but then he went on to explain, but actually, my dear woman, I have been saved, and I'm being saved, and I know that I will be saved. Salvation comprehends the past, the present, and the future. And it's the future tense, that sense that's being used there in verse 1. My salvation will come. And that's where we are this morning. We are there at that point in the text. We are waiting for the dawning of that great and glorious day when Christ shall return. When our salvation will be revealed, we are waiting for and looking for that salvation. When Christ shall come without sin to bring salvation to all those who are waiting for him. That's where we find ourselves in God's calendar this morning. But what are we to do in this waiting time? Well, from chapter 56 to 66... We are given the answer, and we start to be given the answer here this morning. What are we to do in the the meantime? Are we to spend our time, people used to have this expression, they used to talk about pie in the sky when you die. Is that what we're looking for? We just kind of wait until we get the heavenly pie in the sky when we die. What do we do right now? And the answer, of course, is we have steak on the plate while we wait. But, but no, seriously, seriously, what do we do in, in the meantime? Well, listen, as, uh, the, as the prophet unpacks this salvation that will come, this salvation, God's salvation, promotes a new obedience. Verse 1, in light of all of this that we've seen. The people have this salvation coming to them. Here is God's word to those people for the present. Thus says the Lord. He's addressing those who've been accounted righteous because of the work of the, of the Messiah. Back in 53, when he makes an offering for our sin, the righteous one, my servant, 
will make many to be accounted righteous because he will bear their iniquities. It is the crosswork of the Savior that settles our relationship once and for all, as we find chapter 54, verse 10. God says to you, my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. That's secured. But God is about doing more than securing our salvation. He wants to do something in us right now. How should we then live in light of this coming salvation? He begins to unpack it. Now, John Calvin understood this. He would have said that the good news of the gospel could be summed up in two words, acceptance and renewal. He would have said that the grace of God brings a double benefit to the child of God. On the one hand, there's the benefit we've been looking at in the previous chapters. He brings the benefit of full acceptance. Or or we might call it the gift of free righteousness, free justification, a new status before God, sinners who are right with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have that if we trust in and resting in Christ. But he also, on the other hand, promises us in the gospel that those who enjoy the grace of acceptance with God are being renewed by the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ by the work of the Spirit within their hearts. And what does that look like? Now, we've had a hint of this back in chapter 54. Right at the very end, we saw a crucial shift in the use of one particular word. Isaiah has reused this word up to this point only of the Messiah in this section of his work. The Messiah is the righteous servant of the Lord. But as a result of his work... Those of us who share in that work, who the benefits of that work have come to us, we become servants of the Lord. And just as the Messiah in his servanthood obeyed the Father, so we as servants of the Lord are called to a new obedience. We've been put right with God. God begins a work in us of holiness, and we are renewed so that we may bring to God a new obedience. This is what the Apostle Paul is referring to, and he's reflecting, I think, on much that Isaiah has written here when he writes it, that the Lord Jesus came into the world to die for sins because the law couldn't change us, couldn't change our nature. He had to die for us in order that he might bring about in us a new covenant obedience. Here's how he puts it in Romans 8. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God's work is to build into us a new righteousness. Now you see this in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus. He begins that sermon by pronouncing the peace that the priests of Israel always hoped that God would pronounce upon us. He pronounces the blessing of salvation. 
And when he's describing the people who have inherited the blessings of salvation, who are bracketed, they are within the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, those people, those people who know their sin, who grieve over their sin, who long to be pure so that they might see God, and who hunger and thirst after righteousness, those people, those people are the ones who are assured of their relationship with God, and those people become the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And at that point, the Lord Jesus begins to unpack the righteousness that characterizes his believing people. And he says about their righteousness, it's got to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. And their righteousness should be something that they don't just do to show off to other people, but it should be a righteousness that goes deeper in, further down into our character and our motives and our lives than any, anything else. So here in this text then, we are being told that the salvation that is coming, this salvation works in us a new obedience An obedience that is brought about because we are assured of a coming salvation. We we know that day is coming when not only will we receive our great salvation, but the righteousness of God will be demonstrated to the world. That is an incentive to seek righteousness in our own lives right now. Individually, corporately, pursuing it. And... uh, God's salvation promotes a new obedience. Secondly, God's salvation promotes a new orientation. Look at verse 2. Before I read it, uh, let me put it in some kind of context. Jonathan Edwards, uh, one of the great uh, leaders of the American church, although he was an Englishman when he lived because the great division had not yet taken place. Uh, Jonathan Edwards of Northampton, Massachusetts, when he's discussing the genuine experience of the grace of God in a person through the gospel, he cites as evidence a positive response to the things of God, including uh, for the innate beauty and loveliness of divine things. So he's talking about what characterizes people who really know God. And he says, well, they, they are positive about the things of God. They respond positively. This is how he puts it. There is given to those who are regenerated, that is born again, a new supernatural sense. That is, as it were, a certain divine spiritual taste. Now, you know what, having a particular, we talk about people having taste in clothes or in food or in wine or, or, or in summer some other area, having a taste for spiritual things. It is the hallmark in Isaiah, it is the hallmark of the unconverted that they find nothing beautiful, nothing lovely, nothing compelling in Christ. We were told that in chapter 53 verse 2. No beauty in God to desire him. But the regenerated person has been born again. He's been changed or is being renewed from within. 
And one of the effects of that is that increasingly they have a holy love that focuses on holy objects. They have a love for the things of God. Now that, that is what's in mind here. Blessed is the man who does this. And the son of man who holds it fast. Who keeps the Sabbath. Not profaning it. Keeps his hands from doing evil. He's echoing the language of the first psalm. And anticipating the language of Jesus' beatitudes. Blessed is the man. Here's the blessed life. Here is the happy life of the believer. What is a life truly enjoying the blessings of God's grace look like? And he selects one subject. The Sabbath. Now you may not have picked that, but Isaiah does. And we need to ask ourselves why he does. Well, remember what the Sabbath represented. First of all, it's a creation ordinance. It goes backwards past Moses and the law back to the very beginning of time, back to the Garden of Eden where there was no sin. There was a Sabbath. God rested. When I went downstairs earlier on this morning and spoke to the children, I asked them, what is a Sabbath? What does a Sabbath mean? And one little boy put his hand up and said, the Sabbath was the last day of the week when God had finished making the heavens and the earth. In six days, he rested on the seventh day. It's a creation ordinance. You come to the New Testament, and the principle of the Sabbath is established by the Lord Jesus, who calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And what he's saying to the people of his day is, don't you go monkeying around with my Sabbath day, adding rule upon rule upon rule onto people's shoulders, making it a miserable day. That Sabbath is mine. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. It belongs to me. I put my name upon it. It is precious to me, but it is to be defined in my terms. The early Christians took that word seriously. And when they shifted to the, to the first day of the week, what we call Sunday, they did so because that was the day of the, of the new creation began on that day. Christ rose from the dead, the first fruits of them who will be raised. New creation started on the first day of the week. It hasn't finished yet. The everlasting Sabbath is still waiting for the people of God. We rest on the first day of the week in order to anticipate this new creation that has begun by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What did the early Christians call that? I asked the children this morning. They said they call it the Lord's Day. Because the Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's the Lord's Day. And what is the significance of the Lord's Day? I actually think that in our understanding of the New Testament usage of the Lord's Day, the answer to that question is littered around the place. It's the day when God's people gather. It's the day in which the Lord was pleased particularly to show himself to them when they were gathered together in those 40 days before he was ascended into heaven. It's the day, Paul says, you're to bring your money together to give to to Christian work. It's the day that you should not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It's the Lord's day. 
And the book of Revelation is absolutely clear. The book of Revelation was given as a revelation by God to John on the Lord's day. He tells us that. On the Lord's day. On the Lord's day, Christ appeared among the churches. Revelation chapter 1. On the Lord's day, Christ sent messages to the churches with the refrain, whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the Lord's day is a day when the Lord is particularly present within his church. It's the day when his voice is to be heard speaking to his church. And it's the day when we're reminded that he is positionally exalted to the throne of God. Chapter 4, the throne of God. Chapter 5 of Revelation. Christ the Lamb is seated there on the throne of God. And it's on that day that we worship him. We direct our praises to him. Our prayers like incense are gathered up from all the churches and are offered up to God on the Lord's day. On the Lord's day. And it's on the Lord's day, through the preaching of the gospel, that the veil is taken away and we are most particularly made aware there is a spiritual war going on in the world. That the things that happen on the earth don't happen by chance, but by divine ordination. That the things that happen in the world happen not by chance, but because of human evil in the world. That the church in the world is both persecuted by the world and protected by the Lord, that we are meant to see that there are these principalities and powers and authorities and darkness that are all around us trying to destroy the church of God on earth, and that Christ is fighting battles in the heavenly realms, even as we gather to meet in this room today. On the Lord's day, we have that brought home to us, as it is not brought home to us in any other day of the week. It is the Lord's day. It is the Lord's Sabbath. No wonder Isaiah is guided by the Spirit to focus on the Lord's day because it reminds us of the creation and the new creation. It points us forward to the new heavens and the new earth. It is the day in which God particularly puts his hand on his people and says to them, You are mine. You belong to me. Hear my word. Whatever the Spirit says to the churches. It's a sign planted in the midst of our daily life pointing to the new heavens and the new earth. A marker that it's a time to worship. It's a sign of the coming age. And God's salvation promotes a new orientation. We love, we love The place, O Lord, wherein thy honor dwells, the house of thine abode, all earthly joys excels. The Lord's day with the Lord's people in the church of God. And this is my Sabbath, every bit as much as it is your Sabbath. This is the one day of the week when I don't work. Seriously, I've done all the work. This is the one day when I do what you do. I come to be with you in God's house. This is my day off. Because I'm only doing what I would do if I was an ordinary member of the church. I'd be teaching a Sunday school class or I'd be giving out the hymn books. 
And that's all I'm doing. I'm relaying the message the Lord gave. This is a gr- I get exercise as well, which you don't get while I'm giving the Lord's message. It's a good day. A new orientation. We love the things of God. And then thirdly, there is this salvation promotes a new openness. This is important. It takes us from verse 3 to verse 8, and we'll run through that quite quickly. But in those verses, we have a description of people who join the church, who are gathered into the church. There's the whole idea of God as the gatherer there in verse 8. In fact, in that verse, there are three uses of the word, to gather, the Lord God who gathers. I will gather yet others besides those already gathered. And it's talking about people who want to join the church of God. In fact, the language of joining, look at verse 3. The one who has joined himself to the Lord. Or uh, in verse 4, the ones, those who choose the things that please me. Those who hold fast my covenant. Here are people who've heard about the things of God. They've heard about the good news of the gospel and they've responded to it. They're, They're responding to it. And they're embracing it. They're taking a firm grip on the covenant. They come to the communion service and they see the cup that represents the new covenant. And they take a firm grip of it. Because they've taken a firm grip of the promise it represents. God's salvation promotes a new openness. In our day, the word's inclusive or openness suggests a surrender of all moral commitments. In our culture, the pursuit of racial and social harmony is usually put in anemic terms. We need to listen to each other, or we need to learn from one another. But there's no solution offered. Usually the thing is negative. Let's just find out how much we don't like each other, and then try and bury the hatchet. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ actually reconciles racial and social opposites. That's the message that we have here in this text. There are two groups of people in this text. Did you notice them? Two groups of people who in the, in the law of Israel were excluded from the temple and the tabernacle. Two kinds of people. The foreigner and the eunuch. Both of these kinds of people were not allowed, as it were, into the temple of the Lord. But here Isaiah is preaching the gospel. Here's what the gospel does. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. There's no place for me here. Don't let them say that. Don't let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Just think about those two groups of people for a moment. Why, did this, why was it so that, that in the law of Moses there was specific mention of these two groups of people? The answer is there was a theological reason. The eunuch, in the case of the eunuch, the, sexua- the, the, that, the point of the law was that, that, that sexuality is intrinsically good as God made it in the beginning. To pervert it or to destroy it is wrong. The pagan practice of castrating a person was dishonoring to God and to humanity as God has made them. So the law speaking out against the eunuch was not because the eunuch was more evil than anyone else, but, but what was done to the eunuch was in itself 
degrading to a human being and dishonoring to God. The foreigners particularly who were excluded from the temple were the Ammonites and the Moabites. And there was a a local reason for that. The Ammonites and the Moabites had consistently abused God's people. They'd attempted to keep them from getting into the promised land, which meant what? It meant that the Messiah would never have come. So they had a very serious crime and they were, they were barred from, from the, temp, the tabernacle. But there was a bigger promise that had been made to Abraham that superseded the law. That promise to Abraham concerned the whole world. You read about it in chapter 26 of Isaiah. It was God's will to make for all peoples a feast of rich food in which he will swallow up the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. So Isaiah is getting serious here. Look how, how he puts it. Thus says the Lord. He's underlining the authority that goes behind what's going to be said. Here is now God speaking to the eunuchs. This is what God says. Once a person has been gripped by the gospel, they will have a permanent place in God's family. And that includes the eunuch. I want you to notice the use of the first person pronoun, my, here. To the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who chooses the things that please me, who holds fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. God says, To this person who belongs to God, who has committed, chosen the things that please God, who's holding fast to the covenant of God, what is is God saying to this person? That he is going to do something truly remarkable for them. Back in Isaiah 55, verse 13, God had said that because of his saving work through the Messiah, he would give us a name and that would be a sign that would never be cut off. And now he repeats that promise for the eunuch, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Just think of this, a castrated man can have no children. In that ancient society, the stigma of that was nothing to carry on his name or his memory. That was a really big deal. We, we perhaps don't understand the stigma that was attached to that in that society that does not exist in our society, though those who cannot have children perhaps at least identify with the feeling of that, if not the stigma of that. And what has God promised to this person? Something better than children. He promises them something better than a human memory. They will never, never be forgotten. Their name will be an everlasting name. Look look at it. I want to read it to you again. I will give in my house, that is in heaven where God is, and within my walls, a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters, and I will give them an everlasting name, and it shall not be. It shall not be cut off. For those who trust in the Lord, there is an identity To those once excluded, there is inclusion into the family of God. Look at verse 6. 
He addresses the foreigners to the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister, that is to serve God, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Do you see, even the foreigner, those excluded outside of Israel, they can become servants of the Lord too. To those who join, become servants of the Lord, who keep the Sabbath, that is, who remember that God is God and God should be worshipped, who hold fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And their offerings and sacrifices will be accepted. What a lovely description this is of acceptance, of true conversion. People who come to the Lord, who come to serve the Lord and love the Lord. Who come and give their lives and hearts to the Lord. And he's saying these people who were once excluded are included. They become fully part. Everything you can say of Israel, you can say of them. They're part of the Israel of God. And it was precisely this. That the Apostle Paul referred to when he was expounding the difference that Jesus Christ makes to the world. The world of Jew and Gentile. He talks about the dividing wall of partition that has now been removed. It's been torn down because of the death of Jesus. All the things are distinguished and separated. He reminds these people he's writing to that in Ephesians... That there was a time when they were Gentiles, and that meant they were separated from the Messiah. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no hope and were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off are brought near by the blood of Christ. No politician is telling you that this time. No politician is proclaiming that this election year. None of the movements that are going around talking about racial harmony are declaring the basis of racial harmony, which comes in Christ for the people of Christ. All one in Christ Jesus. It is the cross that tears down all the human walls that divide people, that we have erected in our pride and arrogance. It is the cross tears them down and reconciles each into one new humanity, one new society, one people of God. That's what the cross does. This is what God is doing in the world. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. My temple, the, the heavenly temple, will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's the way it was meant to be. Barriers falling, people being reconciled. In Christ. That is the only sure reconciliation that there is. Everything else will flounder around in political speak. And will get nowhere. It really won't. Because it's integral to the human heart. Prejudice is integral to the fallen human heart. It cannot be changed until we are changed by the power of the gospel. Why is this? It's God's great mission in this age to gather the outcasts of Israel. And there are others, he says, I intend to gather beside these into the fold, into the people of God. There's God's great business today. And this is precisely, of course, what we find being fulfilled. 
When Christ comes, when he rises from the dead on that first day, when he began, inaugurated that new Sabbath, the Sabbath that we call the Lord's Day, he began this work. I want you to imagine a man, probably a very tall man, an Ethiopian. They're very tall, Ethiopians, typically. And he's riding on his Mercedes-Benz chariot. He's on the road south of Jerusalem on his way to Gaza to cross over and go down through Egypt to his own home place, Ethiopia. He's a very prestigious person, very influential person. He's interested in the morality and the teaching of the Jewish faith, which is why he's come all the way from there with, with all, the, uh, all the, uh, the pizzazz of somebody who is a man of state and who is a close confidant of Queen Candace, the Queen of Ethiopia. And while he's been in Jerusalem, he's gone to the local temple bookshop. And it would have cost him an awful lot of money to get a hold of this. He'd gotten himself a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah. He must have known about us studying Isaiah coming. Uh, we got it cheaper than he did. He had to buy the whole scroll thing. And there he is on his chariot. He's going down south. And as the chariot proceeds, he's got it unscrolled and he's reading. And God has called Philip the evangelist. He says, I want taken him. And by the spirit, he just found himself standing there on the side of the road. And this chariot's bearing down on him. And as it passes by, he catches the eye of the man. And he says, what are you reading? And he said, oh, maybe you could help me because I've just been reading. <laughs> maybe you could help me. MD and 10th Church could help him. Uh, 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 I've just been reading this little bit, and he reads a little bit of Isaiah 53. Could you explain this to me, he says. Philip got up into the chariot. He was invited onto the Mercedes-Benz chariot for the ride. And as they're going on, and Philip's enjoying the ride, he doesn't forget why he's there. And he, he says to the man, let me explain to you what's going on there in Isaiah 53. He explains the unrighteousness that affects everybody. He explains the righteousness of the righteous servant. He explains that he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And the punishment that brings us peace was upon him and that with his stripes we are healed. He explains that. He goes on to chapter 54. And he says, you know, that promise of salvation, that that work that the servant did has been enshrined in in a treaty with God Almighty himself. An eternal covenant. It is signed and sealed and secured and cannot be altered. Chapter 54. So the work that this servant has done is available and is absolutely uh, provided for us, sealed in the covenant of God. He turns him to chapter 55 and he says, you know, what the servant did is for you. You can come. Everybody who longs, you have a spiritual thirst. That's what brought you to Jerusalem. You're looking for God's answer to your prayers. Here it is. You have nothing to contribute. That's okay. You don't need to contribute anything. It comes free. This good news is free. And he preaches him the free offer of the gospel. Ah, but the man says, it can't be for me. Maybe it's for other people, but it's not for me. I mean, look at me. Look at my color. And you know about my condition. I'm a foreigner. 
And I'm a eunuch, and both of those people are excluded from coming into the presence of God. Oh, says Philip. Let's go into chapter 56. And after he reads chapter 56, he's wanting baptized. There you go. He's come all the way. 56. You're wondering about being a foreigner. What does it say about foreigners? I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And they and their offerings will be acceptable in my house. What does it say to eunuchs? It says to eunuchs, I will give in my house a name, a monument and a name, and I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Philip says to this eunuch, that's for you. You know, that's what we say in the gospel. Whatever you feel is keeping you away from or has cut you off from God, whatever, whatever the hurdles are that you imagine in your mind or that you see in reality, all of these All of these divisions, all of these obstacles are resolved by the cross of Christ. By the cross of Christ. As he brings us here to himself. God is the gatherer. He is gathering people to himself. He's gathering them together to worship him. And you know that that Ethiopian eunuch? He has a name. I mean, we're mentioning him this morning. All over the world, Christian people are reading about that man. He has a name and a future, not just because we know it, but in the everlasting kingdom. And this morning, you can have your name written there in glory, as it were. Know that your name is written in glory. You can share in this great salvation. And it, it is our joy that so more, more and more of our church are becoming, our church is becoming more and more diverse as the, as the years pass. People from all over the place. And that's the way it ought to be because the church of God is God's instrument to gather in from all the peoples those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that today you would uh, please write your word on our hearts. Make us those who find in the Lord Jesus the reconciliation that people are not finding in the streets, not finding in the world outside. Instead of the division that seems to increase from day to day, we pray that in Christ and here in Christ's church, that that reconciliation will be real and will be a blessing. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.